If gaslighting happens when you can deny someone their reality, then an email exchange should be safe. The facts are right there. Unfortunately, the actual words in an email are nothing more than an unromantic strings of zeros and ones stored on a computer. No one is arguing over them. Just before Christmas, I got an email from James, a friend of an old partner, asking for advice on humor writing. We exchanged several more long emails during which he suggested we get coffee next time we were in the same place. He lived in Philly and I in LA. I was taken immediately with the effort James put into our correspondence. The most impressive thing a man can do is care, and he stood in stark contrast to the man I was casually seeing who texted in AIM shorthand. Whether or not James's jokes hit, they were always logically placed. We started writing together at my request, and over two months, we exchanged about 250 emails. We discussed our work, how lonely we both were, and how I prefer slow sex. I admired his rigor and attention to detail, in writing, not sex, though it would come to not pay off as we never got around to publishing anything. Also, no sex. I joked to friends that I had an email boyfriend. I could keep him in the loop with a simple screenshot, and they could experience him in the same way I did. I knew it was just flirting, but we all know the best part of flirting is the anticipation, and waiting on an email provides the same dopamine rush as waiting for a date. The flirting was functionally identical. I had plans to visit a friend in Philly about a month later. I told James, and he invited me to stay at his apartment. I declined the invitation because I already had a place to stay, but I was delighted that he'd asked. We talked over coffee for several hours. He wasn't what I expected. He was gentler, almost, possibly more humble. I liked him, but he was not the man of my email fantasies. I found us flirting, but less so than we had online. Then, two hours in, he mentioned he had a girlfriend. I was glad to be wearing a turtleneck because I reddened with embarrassment. Why hadn't he mentioned her before? Was he waiting for an opening? Here's one. Hey, Ginny, before I send you a 232nd email invite you to stay at my apartment, you should know I'm in a committed relationship. He made matters worse by proceeding to disparage his relationship. She lived in another country, and he said he liked going to visit her because he got to practice a foreign language and get laid. He complained that she didn't like visiting him. Imagine that. I didn't know if he thought this would ease the tension between us, but it did not. Fearing confrontation, I kept our plans for the next night. We were going to dinner and a show with my friend and her boyfriend. I explicitly asked him to invite a friend. His friend bailed. It was a double date, one whose ending I was anxiously awaiting. I left Philly the next day. The whole encounter left me feeling desperately in need of a shower. He'd made me feel grimy. I didn't want to hear from him again. My friend and I had the same idea of what happened. His emails weren't seeking sex. They were seeking attention. There's a specific type of non-committal recognition you can get from a virtual lover. If you say something that upsets them, you don't have to watch their face fall. If you make a joke, you can just assume they laughed. If you have a girlfriend... You don't have to bring her up. James tried to contact me twice in the next two days. I told him my truth. We'd communicated enough that I deserved to know about his girlfriend. I was embarrassed to have sent any sexually explicit messages. 
He should have referenced the girlfriend as soon as I did that, if not much earlier. If I had been in a relationship, I would have politely worked my partner into the conversation as soon as he invited me to coffee in his second email. He took no responsibility, feigning ignorance and apologizing only for how I felt. He didn't ask clarifying questions, but instead jumped to immediate defensiveness. His gaslighting was worse than the original transgression. Isn't that how it always is? At the crux of his argument was the phrase, just emails, as though Hillary Clinton had taught us nothing. A dismissal of the entire medium. Our relationship existed only over email, international waters, where he didn't owe me anything. I'm tired of being treated this way by men, and I wanted to fight my case. I took advantage of the email record. I was able to detail every transgression he'd made, and I sent him an ordered list of what behavior I deemed inappropriate. I've had long, drawn-out fights with men in my past, but I never had all the evidence in front of me, the way that I did now. We were always arguing over a premise in the past, claiming the other had misremembered a fact. Not this time. There was another reason I wanted to stick closely to the facts. I didn't want my fantasy to get in the way. It's true that he had disappointed me simply by not being exactly who I'd imagined him to be. But if I stayed close to the words... I could argue that I wasn't, that wasn't why I was mad. I was mad at him for something concrete, specific, logged words. But was I? There was nothing for James to deny, since it was all in writing. Instead of fighting my facts, he countered with more facts. The unknown context between each interaction. The secret intent. His stories got harder to believe. He said he was a pathological... He had a pathological aversion to ever mentioning his girlfriend, despite telling me about a number of other exes. He had both compared me to his ex and compared himself to my ex. He said he'd invited anyone and everyone to stay at his apartment. He said everything and everything and everything, except I should have told you I had a girlfriend. Our fight was immediately followed by months of quarantine, in which our lives moved online. We were basically already living in a world in which everything was logged, But we used to have the privacy of speaking face-to-face. Now, Zoom had that, too. But if all interaction takes place on our computers, we can't miss anything. There's no chance to argue facts. The facts are stored. If we find ourselves with a full digital record, we can fight differently, but not better. I wasn't fighting with him because of what he'd said to me. I was fighting with him because of how he'd made me feel. Google servers hadn't logged that. Ostensibly... I was demanding he listen to my facts, but I couldn't point to the place in the email where he told me he didn't respect me, where he said I was an afterthought, where he said I was disgusting and it was outlandish that someone like him would hit on someone like me. But he hadn't said those things. I just felt that way. So I argued over the words because I was allowed to be mad about the words. And the words were bad. The words pointed to untoward behavior. That's not why I was mad, though, but that is why I thought I could win. Choice overload says that more choices don't make us happier. There's an analogous version. More means of communication doesn't make us understand each other better. More documentation doesn't help us get to the bottom of an argument. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have tried to assemble the most foolproof, well-researched argument possible. I would have simply told him how he'd made me feel. I thought I wanted to win, but what I actually wanted was for him to hear me tell him that he'd hurt me. I'll never know if he was telling the truth, if he truly believed the interaction was innocuous. I cut off contact. If anything ever existed, it didn't anymore.
What did exist was a record, a fake relationship I could relive anytime I wanted. Emails full of words whose effect I was unable to articulate with mere words. I deleted them. I emptied my trash. James was gone at least, or the James was gone, or at least the record of James was gone. I only learned one thing. This whole problem would have been solved if he'd simply posted a picture of himself with his girlfriend on Instagram.